One of the most interesting stories in Chumash is the story of Bilam. Balak realizes that he's in serious trouble. At this point, he's the king of Moab. Sichon and Og were just conquered by the Bnei Yisrael. And Moab realizes they're the next. And Balak, who at that point is the king of Moab, realizes he's in serious trouble. What does he do? He sends to Bilam. Bilam was known as a Novi amongst the Goyim. And it was known that whoever Bilam would curse, they would become cursed. Whoever he blessed would be blessed. Apparently he had certain very real supernatural powers. Bullock sends messengers to Bilam. <coughs> Bilam says, I can't do anything without asking God. That night Hashem appears to him, and Hashem says, who are these people? They came to ask me to curse this people. This people are taken out of Mitzrayim. Hashem says, don't curse them, they're blessed. And <coughs> the next morning Bilam says, go home, I can't help you. Bullock sends more important messages. They come the second day. Again, Bilam says, I can't do anything without asking Hashem. Bilam goes to sleep. That night again, Hashem says to him, who are these people? They want me to curse these people. Hashem says, okay, you can go, but under the conditions of doing exactly what I tell you. At this point, the Pasuk says, Vayichar af Hashem. Hashem was furious. Number one, you're asking Hashem for permission to curse His beloved nation, the nation that He took out of Mitzrayim, a chutzpah. Hashem says no, and then you ask a second time. Vayichar af Hashem was furious. Now it's very interesting to note what happens in this in the story as it continues. Bilam saddles the donkey himself, and he gets on the donkey and starts riding. And Hashem sends a malach to stop him. At a certain point, the malach shows up to the donkey. Bilam doesn't see the malach, but the malach is holding a sword, and the donkey, instead of going straight, goes off to the side because there's a powerful malach with a sword standing there. Bilam hits the donkey. The donkey goes back on the road. A little while later, the, when Bilam's going between two walls, the Malach stands over here. The donkey goes off to the side and pushes Bilam's leg against, against the wall. Again, Bilam hits the donkey. What's wrong with you? And they go on a little further. And now finally, the, the Malach stops Bilam at a place where there's nowhere to go. It's a very thin, narrow alley. And at this point, the Malach stands right there. The donkey sees this Malach with a sword. The donkey throws Bilam off. Bilam falls to the ground. And he screams at this donkey, What's wrong with you? If I had a stick in my hand, I'd kill you. The donkey turns to Bilam. Hashem opened up the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey said, Bilam, why are you doing this? What did I do for you? Why did you hit me three times? Why did you hit you three times? You're mocking me. You're making a joke of me. If I had a sword, I'd kill you. But I'm your donkey. I've read you. so many years you've rode me. Have I ever done this before? Why are you doing this? At which point the malach appears to Bilam, and Bilam recognizes why the donkey stopped. Okay, now, this is a very, um, I would call it, entertaining story, if we don't understand what's really going on. What's really going on is Bilam is attempting to end the Jewish nation. Now, he didn't succeed in cursing the Jewish nation, because Hashem turned his curses into brachas, but apparently he had that power, but he did succeed in creating a tremendous, tremendous travail in the Klaisrol, he told the Menos Moab, he told Moab their God hates Zima, hates, hates innocuous relations. <clears throat> the Menos Moab seduced Jewish men, and 24,000 Jewish men lived with Menos Moab, and they died in the Magefa. There was actually a revolution, because Pinchas stopped it, but if not for that, who knows what would have happened. The point being, Bilam created a tremendous, tremendous damage and a travesty to the Klyasrol. And if we understood the story just on its simplest level, we might have a number of questions. But if we study the story a little bit deeper, I think we'll have a lot more profound questions that will really 
fundamentally question some of the basic underpinnings of our relationship with our Creator. Let me begin with, begin with the following. Rashi has a problem. Why did Hashem appear to Bilam? Navua, the Rambam explains to us, is a very high level of spiritual attainment. A Novi works for decades and decades on purifying himself, on getting to a very high level. Then he has a, a Novi who's a, a teacher, he's a Ben Novi, he studies by a Novi, and after a tremendous amount of effort and time, he might be Zohar to reach a level of spiritual purity that he's able to communicate directly with Hashem. It's a very unusual situation and very difficult to attain, but it's one of extreme spiritual enlightenment. The question is, Bilam was not spiritually enlightened. He didn't serve his Creator, quite the opposite, he was rebelling against Hashem. Why did Hashem appear to Bilam? Explains Rashi, and the Medrash says, that Hashem said, the Goyim are going to have a, a complaint. I gave spiritual guides to the Jewish nation. I gave them Nevi'im. The spiritual guides led them. The Goyim are going to complain at the end of days. day, had I given them spiritual guides, they would have been much better, they would have been just like the Jewish nation. So Hashem gave them spiritual guides, Hashem gave Nevoah to Bilam, and instead of leading the Gentile nations to purity, to holiness, led to the opposite. The Benos Moav originally were chaste, they were very tzniyas. In fact, He taught them to be the opposite. Instead of helping their problem, He made it much worse. But here's the point. He was Zoha for whatever which reason to speak to God. And it wasn't just He was Zoha to speak to God, He was given tremendous powers, or whoever you curses is cursed, whoever you blessed is blessed. He was given tremendous powers, and he certainly knew the upper workings of Shemayim, and he knew how to deliver a powerful, powerful curse to people. He was given tremendous, tremendous power. But it wasn't just that he was given tremendous power. The hatred that he exhibited far exceeded anything that Balak had. Bullock said to Bilaam, I want you to curse this nation so that maybe I could beat them and they'll leave me alone. Bilaam sets out to kill the nation, and as a matter of fact, Rashi makes a very important observation. He saddles his own donkey. Why does he saddle his donkey? He's a wealthy man with plenty of servants. He saddles his donkey because sinamakalkalas ashura. Hatred blinds a person. Just like Avram Avinu had tremendous love for the mitzvah, he saddled the donkey himself because of tremendous love of the opportunity of Akedah's Yitzhak, Bilaam had such hatred of the Jewish people, that let's go, I get to curse them, I get to destroy them. He had such love of this action that he did something unbecoming for his station because he hated the Jews to such an extent that he wanted them dead, man, woman, and child. Okay, now clearly he didn't succeed. But here's the interesting part. Why did Hashem send a Malach? Hashem has lots and lots of ways to stop Bilaam from doing what he wanted Bill not to do, and in fact, in the end, it was really by stopping the words, instead of having brachas come out, instead of clothes, brachas came out. Why did he send the malach? Rashi says very simply, malach shall rachamim haya, it was a malach of rachamim, of mercy, by milachto, Hashem wanted to prevent Bilam from sinning, because he knew that if Bilam would sin, he'd be lost, he'd lose his neshama, he'd end up destroying his neshama. Hashem sent a malach to prevent him from sinning. Now that Rashi is rather curious, because this man shouldn't be prevented from sinning. This is a Hitler, this is a, uh, this is a Stalin, this is a man who wants to kill the entire Jewish nation, and in fact he succeeds in, in killing 24,000 men, but he's out to annihilate Hashem's chosen people, he asks Hashem permission for it, Vayichara, Hashem is furious, and Hashem sends a Malach Rachamim to prevent him from sinning, because if he sins, Ayvei, his Neshama is going to be lost. 
But if this doesn't trouble you, listen to what the Sorna says. Why was it that Yiftach Hashem is Why did Hashem open the donkey's mouth? That is an overt miracle. Hashem typically does not engage in overt miracles because it affects Bechira, affects free will. <coughs> Excuse me, why did Hashem open the Pia of Asun? In order that Bilam should be awoken to do Tshuva. And why is that? So that an important person like him shouldn't be lost. A man of stature, a man of his level, a man of that importance shouldn't be lost. And Hashem felt it was worthy to have the Asun, have the donkey open its mouth, a miracle beyond human understanding and for a donkey to speak. Hashem wanted that to happen to prevent Bilam from sinning, made to, so he shouldn't be lost. So, here's the obvious question. Where does Rachamim apply here? The man's a Russia, the man's wicked, the man's going out to kill the Jewish people. Why Rachamim? And not only why Rachamim, why does Hashem send the Malach? And even more than that, why would Hashem create an overt miracle where the donkey speaks for such a Russia? The man is up there in the annals of the worst human beings who ever lived. Why is Hashem sending a Malach Rachamim? Why is Hashem making miracles for a person? This person is wicked. He is evil. He deserves to be destroyed. And to understand the answer to this question, we have to understand more basically the way Hashem created the world and in fact some of the fundamentals with which Hashem runs the world. And let's begin with the following. When Hashem created the world, He set forth immutable laws of nature. In the physical world, they exist in every part of the planet, every part of the cosmos. Heat tends to rise. Gases tend to expand. Heavy objects tend to fall. These are laws of nature that apply everywhere, wherever they may be. They're neither kind nor cruel, they're just reality. Rahman you leave a baby unattended, and the baby falls down a flight of stairs. You don't call gravity cruel, mean, vindicative, but there is a certain reality that falling a distance will hurt because there is a reality to the world. Aside from the physical world having immutable laws, so too Hashem created the spiritual world that way. <coughs> Excuse me. For instance, one of the laws of the spiritual world is something called responsibility. You are held accountable for what, you're, what you do, and that's called din. When Hashem created the world, Hashem thought to create the world with din, because din, justice, is appropriate, din is proper. What you do, you're held accountable for. What you do, you're held responsible for. But not only is din proper, without din, there'd be no reward and punishment. How could you be rewarded for anything if you're not accountable for it? How could you be rewarded for anything if you're not responsible for it? At the end of the day, Hashem runs the world in every aspect, and every outcome is up to Hashem. Nevertheless, if I'm the person on the scene who pulls the trigger of the gun, I'm called the murderer, because that's the way Hashem runs the world. I'm responsible for the outcome, I'm resp- accountable for it, even though Hashem is the one who planned it, <clears throat> but to allow for reward, to allow for punishment, there's such a thing called din, justice, and justice really is very simple. You are responsible for what you do, you're held accountable for what you do. However, here's the problem. If the world was created with din and din alone, the world would not last very long at all. Because you see, din has no forgiveness to it. Din has no mitigating factors. Din has no room for excuses. Din is very exact and very demanding. And Ms. Sharma is very clear about this. He says, if it weren't for a special rachamim, just imagine the following. The king of kings tells you not to do something. And you do it. What would be the punishment? The punishment would be simple. Death, instant, no time, no concept of begging forgiveness, no repentance. Every Avera 
would spell instant death. But you have to understand why. Hashem is not just a king in the sense of mortal flesh and blood king of times of yore. Hashem is the creator and maintainer of everything in physicality and everything in the spiritual world. That means Hashem is here everywhere at all times, keeping everything in existence as it's in existence. What that means in plain, simple language is Hashem created the entire world for one reason, to give to mankind. To give mankind the opportunity to grow and to change, to become great for eternity, to become what they're put on the planet to be. And Hashem gave us a Torah with very exact directives. Do this because it'll make you great. Don't do this, it'll damage you. Very clear directives. And then Hashem gave us the opportunity to do what we want. But here's the point. Hashem keeps me in existence every moment of the day. That means these hands, this arm, these legs, this mind is kept in existence by Hashem. As Hashem keeps this in existence, I use the very tools that Hashem gave me to violate Hashem's will. Everything Hashem did is for my good. And Hashem gave me mitzvahs only for my good. Hashem said, don't do this. And I said, I don't care. It's as if I took the very hand that Hashem created and Hashem maintains, and I took that hand and slapped Hashem Kaviachal in the face. Any avera, any sin, should have one consequence. Instant death. No time between the sin and the punishment, and no concept of tshuva, and certainly no concept of mitigating circumstances. Every Avera should have one punishment, instant death. Now, obviously, the world would not do very well in that case, because we, human beings, wouldn't last too long. We'd have what I call the Bar Mitzvah funeral celebration. Right? You have Moshe, he becomes a Bar Mitzvah. All the aunts and uncles gather. <coughs> the Bo Bayom, he gets his bracha, gets his aliyah, layans, and then <coughs> everyone's there for the celebration. And then suddenly Moshe says a snide remark, or maybe he embarrasses his friend, or maybe he says something nasty to his parent, and death. Meaning to say that you'd have a bar mitzvah and a funeral in one celebration, the caterers would not do very well, life would not exist. But by the way, it's not just the Hamon Am, it's not just the regular people who would not do so well. Let's look what happens to the truly great people. One of the four greatest women who ever lived was Sara Imenu. The Medrash Rabbah tells us that she lost 38 years of her life. Why? She had a complaint about Hagar. Hagar was acting in an inappropriate way, and she felt that Avram did not stand up for her honor. And she says to Avram, Yishpur Hashem beini ubeinecha. Let's go for a din Torah. <clears throat> you feel you're acting right? Let's go to Hashem for mishpat. Let's go to Hashem for din. Let's have Hashem judge. Because she said that, the Matnas Kuna on the Medrash Ram explains, because she said that she entered into din, and because of that she was held into extreme din, and she lost 38 years of her life. Because even at Sadekis of unparalleled proportion, with exact demanding din, could not come free, and there was a very real consequence, she lost 38 years of her life. Point being, din is right. Din is justice. Din, din is appropriate, but din alone cannot exist because we, human beings, wouldn't exist. And therefore, it's true that Hashem thought to create the world bedin because din is proper, din is right. Hashem had to introduce something else called the rachamim. Rachamim is mercy. What is mercy? <clears throat> mercy introduces mitigating factors, mitigating circumstances, extenuating conditions. You have to understand, he really didn't understand, he didn't really know, he didn't realize the consequences, he was in a bad situation. You have to take into account many, many other conditions. But here's the point. What Rachamim does is, is it mitigates din. However, din has to exist 
and Rachamim has to exist. Din has to exist because there wasn't din, there'd be no schar vonish, no reward and punishment. Rachamim has to exist because there'd be no human life. So what Hashem did was created the world with a sort of balance. Let's call it 50-50. 50% din, 50% Rachamim. And imagine there's a slide rule. Imagine we have all the way on this side, din, pilwis, and Rachamim. That slide rule is right in the middle, 50-50. And there are various things that can change that slide rule to introduce more din or more rachamim. The way you act with other people is the way they act with you in Shemaim. If you're very demanding, very harsh, very strict with other people, they introduce more din into your judgment. If you're more kindly with people, they introduce more rachamim in your judgment. There are certain times of the year where rachamim is much more prevalent. On Yom Kippur, the slide rule is moved over to much more rachamim. And there are various activities that a human being can do to influence the amount of rachamim and the amount of din where that slide is on that on that me- measurement. One of the things that a person can do is something called tefillah. And let's really ask the following question. How does tefillah work? How does davening work? Hashem decrees Arun Hashanah exactly what's going to be. Where does tefillah fit in? In Cheshvan, in Kislev, where does tefillah fit in? So, if I'm davening for myself, you could argue that the dominant changes me. Many times Hashem will hold back something, <coughs> waiting specifically for me to ask. <coughs> Many times I wasn't Roy, I wasn't fit before I asked, but after I asked, I was Roy. The point is, tefillah can definitely affect the rachamim that Hashem has on me, can affect me. But here's the bigger question. How do you understand how tefillah affects other people? Let's imagine the following. You have a sick woman, serious cancer, and the entire tzibur gets together, 200 people, heartfelt tailum, crying, tearing, Hashem, please have rachamim. Okay, here's the problem. The woman is in a coma. She's not aware of anything. You can't argue she changes. You can't argue her understanding change. What changed? And the answer is nothing changed. She didn't change. Her actions didn't change. But the system of measurement changed. Meaning, it could have been originally she was judged with din, and according to that <coughs> judgment... Her actions, who she was, she was slated not to be here any longer. But when the tzibur damans and asks for rachamim, they move the slide rule over. The woman doesn't change, her actions don't change, but the system of judgment changes, and once that changes, everything changes, and oftentimes that's how tefillah works for other people, for myself as well. But the point is, what it does is, it introduces more rachamim into the system. Okay, now this is a very important understanding of the way Hashem runs the world, and much about our tefillah and our actions, and certainly many of the mitzvahs that we do affect that balance. But there's another step that's very important to understand. I was once speaking in an out-of-town community, and I mentioned what I call the third level of amuna. The third level of amuna is knowing that Hashem knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them. That as I'm thinking my thoughts, Hashem peers into the essence of me and knows exactly what I'm thinking. I'm that loose sight man. When I'm dominating Shemana, I don't have to speak out my words for Hashem to hear. Hashem understands my thoughts and my heart. Let the words of my mouth find favor in your eyes. And the thoughts of my heart. Because Hashem hears the thoughts of my heart. I don't have to speak out my words for Hashem. I speak out my words for the Koch of But Hashem hears my thoughts. Hashem knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them. Okay. After a while, I finished speaking. And a number of people came over to ask questions. And a certain woman was very, very agitated, very disturbed. Initially, she sort of like milled around. She was afraid to come over. Her husband came over. And at a certain point, she comes over and she says to me as follows, This is terrible. 
I can't, I can't even think of it. This is horrible. That Hashem knows my thoughts. That Hashem knows what I'm thinking. That, that, that's the worst thing I can imagine. That's, that's horrible. Now, <clears throat> I said to this woman, first of all, you should know, I have some good news and some bad news. Uh, <clears throat> the bad news is that unfortunately this will soon pass. Because this reality is going to pass. You're not going to feel it as clearly. But I want to ask you, why is it this, this so much disturbs you? Why does this bother you so much? And she wasn't clear, but her husband helped me understand Apparently she, she was a Balas Chuva and her father, when she was growing up, was an abusive person, and she was very uncomfortable with the idea of someone being that close to her. In any case, she had a great difficulty with this concept, and she was clearly troubled. So I said, I'll ask you three questions. And I believe when I ask these three questions, you're not going to have any difficulty with this problem anymore. I said, the first question is as follows. Before you were created... What did you do that made it worthy for Hashem to create you? Right? Before you existed. What great thing did you do that Hashem said, Oh, this person is worthy for me to create? The answer is nothing. Because before you were created, you didn't exist. Before you existed, you couldn't have done anything. And that first step is the most critical step you have to understand. There is nothing that you did before you were created to make it worthy for Hashem to create you. And when you understand that, you understand your relationship to Hashem. Hashem created you for one reason and one reason only, to give to you. Not because you're worthy, not because you're deemed appropriate and good and proper, and not because Hashem needs anything for you. Hashem needs nothing. Hashem wants nothing. Hashem created you for one purpose and one purpose only, to give to you. But again, not because you're good, not because you're worthy, and not because you're going to do anything in your life. The only reason why Hashem created you was to give of His good to share with you. That's point number one. I said, question number two is as follows. How much patience does Hashem have? Right, it's a good question. Uh, certain jobs need more patience, certain jobs need less patience. I was a high school rebbe for 15 years. If you're a high school rebbe for boys, you better have a lot, a lot of patience. Okay, so some people have more patience, some people less patience. How much patience does Hashem have? Yeah, imagine you say a lot of, a ton, uh, like a, wow, huge amount of patience. And the answer is, the concept doesn't apply. Patience is a human limitation. I have so much patience, another person has more, more, more. Hashem is limitless, boundless. The whole concept of frustration of will, the whole concept of not being able to accomplish what He wants doesn't apply to Hashem. Hashem has, doesn't even have infinite patience because the whole concept doesn't apply. It's anthropomorphic. It's applying human traits to non-human entities. Hashem is not human. Hashem is not limited by our limitations. Hashem doesn't lose patience. Hashem doesn't have a lot of patience, not an infinite amount of patience, because the whole concept doesn't apply to Hashem. Hashem is infinite beyond any human definition or description. But the third question I said is the more important one. I said, Madam, let's say you decided to get God angry. I've had it. I've really, really had it. What could you do to make Hashem really, really mad? Right? What if you decided, I'm going to make Hashem really angry? What could you do to make Hashem really, really angry with you? And the answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I'll explain to you why. First of all, with all due respect, you're just not important enough. Let's focus on one single reality. <clears throat> Hashem created a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars. Within one Milky Way galaxy that's so huge that it's almost incomprehensible, which is one of a hundred thousand in the observable universe, 
there is one solar system, there's a sun, and on the sun there's a, oh, a tiny, tiny earth, oh, there it is, there, there, tiny, tiny earth, and on this earth a 7.8 billion people, oh, and there are you, oh, oh there, I see a little pin in it, a little pin in it. God is the creator and maintainer of everything in reality, everything that exists, every concept, everything that is. You're not exactly bar pluctus, you're not exactly on the same level. I can get angry with a contemporary. I get angry with a peer. How dare you do that? You stepped on my toes. It'd be like, I don't even have a muscle. What would it be like? It'd be my getting angry at a six-month-old. Oh, you six-month-old, why you do that? It, it, there's no comparison even, because Hashem is so much larger, so much bigger, so much, that, that the idea of getting Hashem angry would be foolish. But even more than that, the whole concept does not apply. Anger is a human limitation. Anger is a human emotion. When Hashem acts with anger... It's exactly that. As Rishonim explained to us, Hashem is wearing a face. Hashem acts v'charon af, acts v'yichar af Hashem. Hashem acts with certain midos because for our benefit, for us to relate to Hashem, for us to have a relationship, for us to have some ability to, to recognize Hashem, Hashem acts that way. But Hashem isn't angry. Hashem wears it as a, as a face, wears it as a mask. But the concept of getting Hashem angry is so beyond understanding of God that you really can't even begin to, to mouth the words Hashem is angry, the concept doesn't apply. I said when you understand that, what you quickly understand is that there's no reason for you to be uncomfortable. Why? Because the only reason to be uncomfortable is, I failed, I'm not worthy, uh, Hashem lost patience with me, Hashem is angry with me. If I know that Hashem created me for one reason, one reason only, just to give to me, and Hashem is infinitely patient, and Hashem never gets angry, and all Hashem wants is my betterment, wants my good, wants me to improve, wants me to get even better and bigger and enjoy more proximity to Him, if I know that, then there's nothing to be afraid of. The only reason why you're afraid is because you're painting God in human terms. You're thinking of God like a human being. Human beings have limits. They have patience. They have limits to their patience. They have anger. At certain points you get people angry. They're furious. But that doesn't apply to Hashem. And when you understand that, you're able to understand Hashem on a much deeper level. And that's the answer to this woman. And more importantly for us, that is the answer to Bilaam. It is true that according to any human definition, Bilaam did not deserve for Hashem to send a Malach Rachman. Bilaam was a Russia. And according to any cheshman that we would have, we would say, kill the guy, get rid of the bum. He's a creep and a bum. He gave him the, the greatest gift called Nevoah. And you gave him these powers. And what did he do? He is trying to use them to the, to the detriment of, of your love, beloved nation. You should murder him in cold blood. And according to any human calculation, there's no room for Rachman there. But the reason why there's Rachman there is because it's not human being. It's Hashem. It's Hashem who's sending the Malach. It's Hashem who's doing that because Hashem's patience is, is infinite. Hashem's love is infinite. And that's the answer to Bilaam. And one of the concepts that a Jew has to understand is that Hashem loves me. And that Hashem loves me more than I love me. I've said this many times and it bears repeating. There are two concepts of basic bitachon. The Chavaz explains if you have these two concepts, you can have bitachon. If not, you have no chance of trusting in your Creator. The first concept that a person has to have is Hashem loves me more than I love me. As much as I want what's good for me, as much as I want my betterment, as much as I want everything good, Hashem wants it even more. As much as I love me, Hashem loves me even more. And if that sounds lofty and difficult to attain, how do I relate to that? It's really quite simple. If you want to get a good grip on this, all you have to do is look at a young mother. 
Look at a mother with a newborn baby. And look at the love that the mother has for the baby. <clears throat> the mother gets up at night for the baby. The mother feeds the baby. The mother does anything for the baby. The mother probably would give up her life for the baby. Now again, let's ask that question. What great deed did the baby do to make it worthy that the mother loves him? Oh, great baby, what you did for me, I... The baby didn't do anything. The baby's an infant. Why does the mother love the baby so? Because as the Chovos of Ovis explains, Hashem implanted a maternal instinct into the heart of the mother because Hashem wants children to be cared for. But the Chovos of Ovis explains to us that if you take that love and multiply it 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 times, you won't even have a splinter of the unbridled love that Hashem has for any one of His creations. Because the love of Hashem is infinite and even beyond that, Hashem doesn't lose patience, Hashem doesn't get angry, and all Hashem wants is for the betterment of you, for you to grow, for you to accomplish. As much as you love you, Hashem loves you even more. And that concept isn't so difficult. It's of course the second concept that gets us into a lot of trouble and gets us into a lot of messes. And that second concept is playing God. Playing God means I know what I need. I need this to happen, and I explained it to Hashem, and Hashem doesn't play go along. Uh, Hashem, I don't get it. You're angry at me. You have time. Hashem, what's the deal? Playing God is a very dangerous thing to do if you're not God, because we human beings don't really see that far into the future. I have to marry this woman, and a guy doesn't marry that woman. I have to get this job. He doesn't get that job. I have to get my kid into this class, <clears throat> and the kid isn't admitted into that class. Hashem, what's the deal? Why, 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 why? And we have so many tinies, so many complaints. And the thought that maybe that which I think is for my best isn't, never seems to cross my conscious mind. How many times do you hear, I had to marry that woman, and the guy doesn't marry that woman, <clears throat> she marries someone else. And five years later, you hear the term mentally unstable as an understatement to describe her condition. I have to get that job. And he doesn't get the job. And three years later, he finds out the entire industry is sent over to India. I have to get my kid into that class. And his child isn't admitted into that class. Two months later, he finds there's another child in the class who would have been the worst possible influence on the child. Playing God means, I know what I need. I know what I need. And I explained it to Hashem. Hashem, please, come on. It's so obvious. It's so clear. Hashem, what's the deal? Why aren't you helping me with what I need? If the first concept that a person has to have for Bitochen is knowing that Hashem loves me more than I love me, and the second concept is knowing that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. As much as I think this is for my best, it might not be. As much as I have all the plans worked out, they might not be for my good. As much as I think this is my betterment, it might not be. As much as I know what's for my best, Hashem knows even better than I. And this concept gets us into a lot of trouble. I would say 80% of our Amuna problems, 80% of our philosophical issues stems from this problem. Hashem, why me? But again, these two concepts, when you get them, when you work on them, and you really understand that Hashem loves me more than I love me, and not everything that I think is for my best is for my best, you're able to understand life, you're able to understand your position in the world, and you're able to understand how much love Hashem has for you. But that's not going to really help us this Shem Kippur. If you want to hear what's going to help us this Shem Kippur, let's focus on what the Surna tells us. The Surna says that the reason why Hashem opened the mouth of this Asun, of this donkey, was because a man like Bilam shouldn't be lost. Look at this Neshama. Look at this Neshama. He's going to be lost. He's going to sin. He's going to try to curse the Jewish nation. And he's going to be lost. Better I should bring a nace. Let me get, make the donkey speak. 
because a man of that stature to be lost would be horrific. And Hashem brings a nace because Bilam is worthy of saving. A man of that stature is worthy of a miracle. Okay, here's an interesting question to ask. Who is more important, you or Jeff Bezos? Right? Good question. Who's more important? Now, the Igeris Ramban tells us that if a person is given great wealth, you're obligated to treat him with covet. If Hashem gave great wealth to a person, Hashem wants that person to be treated with honor. And therefore, if a person has great wealth, you're obligated to treat him with honor. So, we have Jeff Bezos, we have Elon Musk, maybe Bill Gates. Who's more important, you or these people? So I'd like to let you in on a little secret. Um, you're not as important as Jeff Bezos, or Elon Musk, or Bill Gates. You're not as important at all. You're far more important. Why? Because you are Hashem's chosen nation. Am hanivchar, boni matem l'ashem lokechem, am segula, as much as any Gentile will be important, as significant as he will be, he pales in comparison to a Jew, because we are Hashem's chosen nation, with a segula amongst the nations, who are Hashem's beloved, we're called children to Hashem, and as much as a Gentile is deservant of honor, it doesn't begin to begin to begin to the honor due to a Jew. So here's the question. Who's more important, you or Bilam? And the answer is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you're far more important. Why? Because Bilam was not even a guy tzaddik, he was a guy Russia. A guy Russia who took the very gift that Hashem gave him and so perverted it to use it against everything determined, everything that was right and proper, a guy Russia like that is on the bottom of the barrel, and you're a holy Jew created in Hashem's image, children of Hashem. There's no comparison. And when you understand that, what you begin to understand is how much Hashem loves you, and how much Hashem wants your betterment, and how much Hashem only wants one thing, and that is for you to do better, for you to improve, for you to grow, for you to change, for you to reach your potential, to reach your greatness, to become the person that you are destined to be. And the only thing funny about our relationship with our Creator is that we don't feel it. And so many times people have a sense around Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur of, Hashem is angry with me, Hashem is out to get me, and uh, dread and fear and pachad and oivei. Uh, now there's plenty of room for pachad because there's emas adin. <clears throat> but there should be a tremendous joy. But do you understand why there should be a tremendous joy? I've said this over and over, and I spend a tremendous amount of time on this single concept. Hashem created the world in a very unusual manner. Hashem created one man. Adam was one man. Why did Hashem create one man in Chava? And from that, everyone came out to teach everyone after Him a lesson. Hashem says, it's worthy for me to create the entire world, the entire cosmos, the heavens and the earth for one human being. And I too am a human being. It's a mission in Sanhedrin. Chayav Adam Loma, man's obligated to say, Bishrilim Niver Olam, Hashem would have created the entire world for me and me alone. Now here's the problem we face. We don't relate to that. We don't understand it. Halavai, I view myself as an important person. Halavai, I view myself as having potential. But the view that Hashem would have created the whole world, we don't, we don't do that. We don't view ourselves that way. But here's the point. Hashem learned that Mishnah. Hashem wrote that Mishnah. And what Hashem is saying is, Avada, that's true 10,000 times more. Do you understand how important you are? Do you know how valuable you are? For Bilam or Russia, I would bring a miracle. I would have a donkey speak. Do you know how important you are? I would have created the heavens and earth for you and you alone. If we don't feel it, it's because we're weak. We're blinded by physicality. But Hashem doesn't have that blinders. And Hashem sees and Hashem says, it's worthy for me to have created the entire world for you and you alone. And that's the one concept that you has to have 
when he stands in front of his Creator on Yom Kippur, that Hashem loves me, Hashem wants my betterment, and Hashem considers me incredibly valuable, incredibly worthy, and even more than that, when I stand in front of my Creator on Yom Kippur, I am the only human being in creation in this moment. I'm in the presence of God, and I and I alone am speaking to my Creator, and Hashem is paying full attention to me and me alone. And that is the relationship of a Jew to his Creator on Yom Kippur. And if we don't feel it, it's okay, because Hashem does. And if we recognize this single concept, the value that Hashem has for any Jew, the incredible love that Hashem has for any Jew, how much Hashem wants that person's betterment, how Hashem never loses patience, how Hashem never gets angry, and more than anything, how much Hashem values our, what we can accomplish and what, and what Hashem would do for us, believe me, we would grow, we would accomplish, we'd steig, and we would do a very powerful tshuva on Yom Kippur. But here's the problem. The problem is it's distant, it's hard to feel, and we need some motivation. We need some motivation to really feel the power of Yom Kippur, what I can accomplish, what I could do, how much I could change me, how much I could change my destiny, my future. So I'd like to share with you some thoughts that maybe will help a little bit. Let's begin with the following. What happens when I leave this earth? So we're very familiar, certainly if you listen to the Shmuz, I've discussed this many times, and if you've read the book, Stop Surviving, Start Living, it's very detailed. When I die, my body's put in the ground, and I separate. I separate means I'm the one who thinks, I'm the one who feels. I'm the guy inside, this is the coat. I hang up the coat, put it on the hook, and I step out, but it's me. With all of my thoughts, all of my memories, I the same thinking, I, that I'm speaking to you right now. Okay, but what's it like? (laughs) What actually transpires that moment when I leave my body, and I stand in front of the Beit Shomala? If you'd like a muscle to what it's like, I have a very interesting one. If you go to the Holocaust Museum in Manhattan, as you walk in, you'll see this antechamber, this first room. It's a very large room, circular wall, floor to ceiling, very tall, and the entire chamber is filled with pictures, hundreds, maybe thousands of pictures, old people, young people, children, wives, husbands. What they're trying to do is show you the faces of the Holocaust, the people who were killed, letting you see the enormity, how many people, and yet at the same time, putting some human touches to it, so you could feel it, you could touch it, you could sense it, and it's a very powerful exhibit, the hundreds, maybe thousands of pictures, old people, young people, young, etc., all up and down the wall. Okay, if you would like to know what it's like when I die, my body's put in the ground, I leave, and whoosh, with a brilliant acuity, I wake up, and every scene of my life is right there. Every scene of my life is right in front of me. There I am as, as a young fellow. Oh, wow. There I am as an older person. There I am as a first child. There I am when I got married. Oh, there I am when I'm older. There I am when I'm ch- All the events of my life, all arranged there for all to see. Many of those pictures are very... Wow, all right. Great chesed guy. Oh, yeah, I did that. Right. Oh, you're steiging. You learned that was beautiful. Wow. Oh, and you were re- oh, you were outstanding. You dominate that one. I say that is really imp- wow. But then the- oh, that's a little embarrassing. Oh, and that scene I'm not so happy with. <clears throat> oh my goodness, what about that? You see, here's the point. If you are a human being, I guarantee there will be many, many actions that you did that you'll be hugely proud of. But I'm sorry to tell you that there'll also be actions that you're not so proud of, and some that you're darn embarrassed about. 
But here's the problem. They're all there. The good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. Because every action that I did leaves an indelible mark on me, and that image is there forever. Yes, it's true, Gehenim maybe dulls a little bit, so some of them, but it will not eliminate a scene. It's not going to take it away. And if I could just touch that moment and see the beautiful accomplishments, the chesed, the learning, the davening, the tremendous things that I did, and I could see the incredible sense of joy that I have from them, and the opposite, the pain of those scenes that are with me for eternity, that would be a very, very open, eye-opening concept. But there's one more step to this mushal. I'm looking through these images, good, bad, and different, and then I see a frame, but just blank, no picture. Strange. I look further, and I see another frame, and no picture. That's strange. And then I see a whole section, maybe 10, 15 pictures, all frames and no pictures. And then I see an entire whole segment. Wow! Hundreds of just frames and no pictures. What's going on? What, what is that? And I look carefully underneath, and I look at the frame, and underneath it says, Yom Kippur 5782. Yom Kippur 5781. Yom Kippur 5780. You see, that's what Tshuva does. What Tshuva does is it eliminates the scene. It eradicates the Avera. It undoes it. And there will be many, many scenes that aren't there, that are just erased. They're not there because I really did Tshuva. And if I could just wake up to that single reality, it's going to be me and it's going to be forever. And I will be exactly what I shaped myself into, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. And I know I've done many things that I wish I didn't do. I can change them. I can get rid of them. As long as I'm alive, as long as there's breath in my lungs and blood in my veins, I can change, I can grow, and I can do something called tshuva. What tshuva does is eradicates the picture. It's gone. It's not there. A little bit of tshuva erases a little bit. A lot of tshuva erases it more. A complete tshuva and the scene is gone. You can eradicate days, weeks, maybe months. You can eradicate a year. You can get rid of entire sections that you're very, very unhappy with by just using the system of tshuva. And what is tshuva? All you have to do is have haziva sachet. Number one, you leave the sin. Number two, Kabbalah, about a plan for the future. Number three, Harat, the regret. And number four, Vidui, confession. Four parts of Tshuva, you do that, and the sin is gone. Again, there are many, many levels to it. The more regret, the more you feel badly about it, the more that's gone. But any Tshuva gets rid of a little bit. The more Tshuva gets rid of more and more. As Archa Sadiqim explains, when I have a beautiful white coat and I get a stain on it, I rub it a little bit, the stain comes out a little, I rub it some more, more comes out, rub it more, there's still a shadow of the stain, eventually rub enough, it's totally clean. That is the process of tshuva. And if I recognize that for eternity, I'm going to be there. And every action of my life is there forever for you to see, for everyone to see, more than anything for me to see, and I'm going to be hugely proud or horribly embarrassed, and I can eradicate, if I understood that moment, I'd understood the power of tshuva. But there's another step here. There's another very important step, and that is in our world that we live in. I want you to listen to the words of the Ramban and Chumash. <coughs> On the end of Bo, the famous Ramban says, Ein la'adam, a person doesn't have a chelik b'toros Moshe Rabbeinu. A person does not have a portion in Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah, mikreinu, until he believes that all of our actions and everything that occurs to them, kulam nisim, are all miracles, there's no derech teva. If you believe in teva, if you believe in happenstance, if you believe in circumstances, 
you have, don't have a chilek in Torah's Moshe. You're not, how do I say politely, you're not an Orthodox Jew. That's what the Ramban is saying. You don't have a chilek in Torah. You don't, your basic fundamental understanding is lacking. Understanding that everything that occurs to me, for the good or for the bad, is all nisim. Rather, if I do mitzvahs, <coughs> that schar will reward me in this world. And if I do bad, I'm going to be punished for them. Everything with the gzer of Hashem. Whether it's a klayashol or an individual, you have to know that what you do has very real results, very real ramifications in this world. Serve Hashem properly, and Hashem will reward you in this world. It's not the schar for the mitzvah, but you're going the right way, and Hashem wants to help you because you're doing what's good. All Hashem wants is your betterment. But go the wrong way, and Hashem feels terrible. You're going the wrong way, and Hashem has to correct you. Hashem has to set you straight. And I want to share with you a story that I told a number of years ago. It was back in the 50s when Herbeim were not as kindly and trained as they are today. In any case, it was a fourth grade, and the Rebbe was trying to teach, and there was Moshe in the front row talking. And the Rebbe says, Moshe, please be quiet. And Moshe keeps talking. Moshe, please be quiet. Moshe keeps talking. Moshe, please be quiet. Moshe, be quiet. Moshe's talking and talking. Finally, the Rebbe says, Be quiet! Moshe's still talking. The Rebbe had it. He grabs Moshe, holds him by the collar, holds him by the window, and says, Moshe, if you don't quiet down, I'm going to throw you out the window. Do you understand? Moshe says, Rebbe, Rebbe, whoa! You don't have to holler. You want me to be quiet? Speak like a mensch. Just ask me to be quiet. You don't have to scream. You don't have to yell. Make all these commotions. I'm afraid that sometimes we're like Moshe. Hashem sends messages. Hashem sends corrective signals. Hashem says, why don't you just grow and accomplish? I gave you Torah. Every mitzvah in the Torah helps you grow. Everything will help you in this world, help you in the world to come. Every very damage you. Just listen to it. And we buck the system, and we buck the system, and Hashem sends warning signs. <clears throat> First it's a little potch, then it's another potch, and another potch, and all the while, instead of listening, we get all grumpy. Hashem, why me? Why me? Why me? And we don't listen. And much like that boy, instead of listening to the Rebbe, we start arguing, and then when a big patch comes, Hashem, Hashem, why do you have to bring this? And he could have just spoken like a mensch. And Hashem says, who was sending all those messengers till then? Who was being so kindly to try to set you on the right path? What the Ramban is telling us is, forget the world to come. Do you want to have a comfortable stay in this planet? Do you want to enjoy life? Do you want to earn an income in a good way? Do you want to suffer defeats and terrible situations? Or do you want to enjoy life? Do you want to have a good shalom bias? Do you want to have a bad shalom bias? Do you want to have things that happen to you that are nasty and mean and just hurtful? Or do you want to have a beautiful life? If you want to have a beautiful life, just serve Hashem as He wants you to serve Him. But why is Hashem going to reward you? Not because that's the reward for the mitzvahs, but because Hashem says, you're doing what I want. I'm going to help you. Everything you need, I'm going to give you. So I'm going to be rich? I'm going to be famous? No. You may not need that, but everything that you need, you're going to have. And you'll have it easy, because there's no reason for pain. There's no reason for suffering. The only reason for suffering is because Hashem is sending you a message, sending you a correction, and sending you a kapara. But if you're doing what you're supposed to, there's no need for that. And if you want a motivation to do tshuva, it's just this. I don't want to suffer. Look back on your year. Look back on the scraped knees and the falling and the parnasa problems and the shalom bias problems and whatever the issues are. And we all have stuff. And just think about all the problems with your kids and all the issues that went wrong and just say, every one of them didn't have to be. It could well be that if I was different, if I was growing, if I was steiging, if I was really serving Hashem properly, it could well be that none of them would have happened. 
And more than anything, I recognize that if I do tshuva, Hashem's going to shower me with good. Forget the world to come, this world alone. And I think that is a very powerful message and a very important reason to use Yom Kippur properly. It's Yom Slicha Umachila, a day where I can change, I can grow, I can eradicate scenes in the world to come, more than I can eradicate scenes that I did in this world that are going to cost me. And I can have a beautiful life in the world to come, a beautiful life in this world as well. But there's one more step. And only because we seem to have such a hard problem <coughs> seeing Hashem's love, I want to focus on a tefillah that we say. Right before Shema, <coughs> we make a bracha. There are two brachas. The last one, Avarabah, <coughs> it's really a bracha satora, <coughs> but it's a bracha we say before Shema. And I want you to listen to the words. Avarabah of Tanu Hashem a great love, Hashem, you've loved us with. Chem Gadola, a great, great treasure. You gave us a tremendous blessing, tremendous goodness. Avino Avrahaman, merciful Father, please have mercy. Put in my heart the ability to learn and to understand the Torah, to keep all the mitzvahs of the Torah. Open my eyes in the Torah and be miyach in my heart to know you, to recognize you, to fear you, to love you. And then listen to this line. And so I will not be embarrassed for eternity. Now that's a very interesting line. <clears throat> Do this so that I will not be embarrassed for eternity. Now I'd like to share with you an interesting thing. I <clears throat> recently, I don't know, maybe I've been doing lots of wrong things, but I smashed my knee recently. And I had a really rough time walking. I was walking with a cane and it's stilt and a whole business... And I'll be honest with you, it was pretty embarrassing. I'm not an old person. Walking with a cane was like pretty embarrassing. All right, listen, I suffered. Whatever. <clears throat> okay. Came Rosh Hashanah, I faced a real problem. My daughter's house is two miles from Yeshiva. And with that cane and with that knee brace, there was no way I was walking two miles. So <clears throat> on Rosh Hashanah, my son-in-laws pushed me in a wheelchair from my daughter's house to Yeshiva and back, back and forth, back and forth. And let me tell you something. If you want to know Busha, that is Busha. I left Rochester 20 years ago as a young man. <clears throat> I come back 20 years later. I'm not decrepit. I'm not an ancient person. But having sitting there in a wheelchair, having my son push me, I, the bush was very powerful. Now I said to myself, what, what am I? Am I a vain person? <clears throat> Why am I so troubled by it? And the answer is, maybe I'm a little bit vain, but that's okay. It's not a bad mida because there's such a thing called self-respect and independence, and you don't want to be an invalid. You don't want to be that way. <clears throat> Do you understand what Chazal was saying in this tefillah? For eternity, you will be what you shaped yourself into. You'll be what you made yourself into. There's no spiritual nourishment like Limanat Torah. There's no spiritual growth like learning. It's superpower. It's rocket fuel for the soul. It supercharges you, gives you energy, gives you strength. And for eternity, you'll be great or not based on how much you accomplish. A huge, huge portion of that is how much you learn. And because that's the rocket fuel for your soul. Yes, you have to do mitzvahs. Yes, you have to work on your mitzvahs. Yes, you have to daven. And you have to be talking in a muna. Yes, you have to work on all those things. But the center core of it all is learning. And if you want to use Yom Kippur for one purpose, it's to wake up. Yom Kippur is a day of slicha mechila. You can tremendously change things. You can get rid of stacks and stacks of averas. You can clap and really, really change your olam haba and your olam haza. But there's a much bigger difference that you can make. And that is planning to grow planning to change and making real changes and I'll share with you something very very frightening I almost guarantee 
that you could be learning two additional hours a day without changing your schedule in any significant way. <clears throat> still keep your job. If you're a mother, you still be a housewife. If you would just do one thing, take this little device and not turn it on, or <clears throat> get rid of the apps and monitor your time and use your time wisely, I guarantee two additional hours a day without changing anything, <clears throat> the amount of time that's wasted on social media and WhatsApp and even with just email, I myself am guilty of this. I say it's for a purpose. I have to answer people's emails and questions. Nonsense. There's a tremendous amount of time that's wasted because you don't have to check it every two minutes. You don't have to be constantly looking back and forth. And I'm telling you, two hours a day easily of an additional learning. But do you know what that means? For eternity, you can be phenomenally great. You can be an Adam Godel. You can be a tremendous person or not. And it's all based on your decisions. And if you don't believe in you, that's okay. But Hashem believes in you. And Hashem knows what you're capable of. And Hashem's going to push you. And Hashem's going to guide you. And Hashem's going to direct you. And all you have to do is ask Hashem for help. You beg Mechil and Slich on this day because you can change things in the world to come. You can change things in this world. But more than anything, you ask Hashem for Siyat Hashemaya. Hashem, help me. Help me grow. Help me set up Sadarim. Help me set up things in a positive way. And more than anything... I have a recommendation. How do you keep the energy? How do you keep the enthusiasm? You're going to be in shul dominating, and it's going to be real, and it's going to be powerful, and you're going to really feel it. But how does it help in Cheshven? What happens comes Kislev? What happens to the, the, the inspiration? There's only one way to keep it, and that is you have to learn Musr daily. Every single day you have to learn Musr. Mishabura brings us Lahalacha, but it's one of the wisest concepts you have to, you need motivation, you need inspiration, you have to learn Musa every day. Halavai, you're able to learn from the Musa Svarim. Unfortunately for many people in our day, the Musa Svarim are broken, so then I have a simple Eitzah. You find inspirational people who can inspire you. Go to the Shmuz.com, go to the Shmuz podcast, their entire series, their entire 280 beyond that Shmuzim, a huge amounts of series, huge amounts of stuff, listen to the Shmuz, you're bored of the Shmuz, go to the Torah anytime. There are hundreds and hundreds of Rabbanim with great speakers. And listen, find something that inspires you and make up this coming year, 20 minutes a day, I'm going to learn Musa. How am I going to learn Musa? I'm going to put on an inspirational speaker. Again, if it's a schmooze, it's great. If not, someone else. And you put it on and you listen and it becomes your inspiration. It becomes your lifeline. It keeps you going. It keeps you moving. I think there's a tremendous lesson to learn from Bilam. And that lesson is that Bilam was an ultimate Russia. He was one of the worst human beings who ever lived. Hashem gave him this matana, this tremendous gift, this gift called nevuah, and he went to use it against the client. So it caused the death of 24,000 people. He wanted to annihilate the Jewish nation. And he asked Hashem for permission. And yet Hashem sent a malach rachamim. Ayvei bilam, I don't want you to die. Malach, stop him, stop him, stop him. And it wasn't enough. As the Svon explains, Hashem, Hashem opened up the mouth of the Asun. Why? Because maybe Bilam will get it. And when the Asun speaks, when the donkey speaks, Bilam will say, oh my goodness, who gives speech to man? Hashem, Ayvei, I better do tshuva. Bilam was an important person. So important, the Svona says, that it was worthy for Hashem to bring such a miracle. But that's the point we have to always remember. As important as Bilam was, he was a guy, Russia. Any guy, Russia, is nowhere near as important as a guy, Tzaddik. But any guy is not as important as a Jew. We're the Amma Nifra, Hashem's chosen nation. Jeff Bezos has honor. And Bill Gates is treated with honor. That's great. 
but any Jew is more important in Hashem's eyes, and Hashem wants our growth, wants our success, and if we forget that Hashem created the whole world for our purpose, that Hashem would have created the whole world for me and me alone, Hashem doesn't forget that. And what we have to remember always is that Hashem loves us more than we love us, and Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. But to remember that, there are three concepts that a person has to remember. And number one, remembering clearly that before I was created, I did nothing that made it worthy for Hashem to create me. Hashem created me for one purpose and one purpose only, to give, to give His good with me. What could I do to make Hashem lose patience? Nothing. Hashem doesn't lose patience. The concept doesn't apply. What could I do to make Hashem angry? After what I did, Hashem can never forgive me. That concept is foolish. Number one, you're not that important. And more than that, the concept is anthropomorphic, taking human traits and trying to shoehorn Hashem into them. Hashem is not limited by our limitations. Hashem doesn't get angry, Hashem doesn't lose patience, and Hashem only wants one thing, our betterment, our growth. Hashem gave us a special day, we can change, we can grow, we can feel Hashem much closer, it's much easier to do tshuva on that day, you just have to wake up. How do we wake up? By remembering the world to come, and by remembering this world, and more than anything, remembering that who I am for eternity is based on what I made myself into. And I want to close with one last thought. When we read the story of Bilaam, I think we laugh. We read the story of Bilaam and we laugh. <laughs> the donkey pulls off to the side of the road, he hits him, the donkey bucks him, he hits him, the donkey starts talking, he argues with the donkey. And the donkey said, what do I ever do to do this? He argues back and forth. What a clown, what a foolish guy. That's very funny and very humorous. But what if I share with you that's you and I? How many times does Hashem send directional signals? How many times does Hashem make it as obvious and clear as day that He doesn't want us heading in this way? And Hashem puts obstacles and blockages and makes things tough, and we don't get it. And we argue. And much like Bilam arguing with the donkey, we argue with Hashem, and we get angry with Hashem. Hashem, why are you making it tough for me? Why are you making it hard? Hashem, I don't get it. Why, 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 why? Instead of waking up and knowing that Hashem wants one thing, our growth, our betterment, Hashem wants me to succeed. Hashem only wants what's good for me and what's best for me. And if I could just wake up to that and understand the power of the day, Hashem's view of me, what I can accomplish, I can live my life appropriately, I can enjoy this world, the world to come, and I can become the great human being that Hashem created me to be.